Please take your Bible and open it again to the book of 1 Samuel, if you've lost your place there. We'll be looking at the passage which was read earlier in part, but we'll also be looking at several other passages in the book of 1 Samuel. Have you ever stopped to think that the Bible really is a study in contrasts? Contrasting concepts, for instance, light versus darkness, life versus death, grace and works, and contrasting relationships also. We know about the book of Genesis. The book of Genesis has contrast in relationships between brothers, a lot of sibling rivalry in the first book of the Bible. For instance, Cain and Abel. They were rivals, studies in contrast, as far as the way in which they related to God. Isaac and Ishmael, another brother duo, who were different studies in contrast. Jacob and Esau, Joseph and his ten older brothers. Today we're going to look at a study in contrast between a king and his son. The king, the first king of Israel, Saul, and his son, Jonathan. Now, by the way, Saul had more than one son. He had two other sons, Ishvi and Malkishua. He also had two daughters, Merab and Michael. But when we think about the man Saul, we think of a man who really was not a very good role model at all for his children, and particularly for Saul, Samuel, Jonathan, third time's a charm, especially for Jonathan. And let's consider some of these behaviors that were counterproductive, not only for him, but also for his children. He was one who built a monument to himself. What kind of person builds a monument to himself or herself? That is the height of egotism when someone would do that because we build a monument to be remembered by others and, in a sense, to be adored by other people. It shows the insecurity that characterized the life of King Saul. He also had this character defect, and that was that he was rebellious. This perhaps was the largest of all his character defects. If you'll turn now to chapter 15... We're going to look at something that Samuel, the prophet, said to this man, King Saul, based on some behavior that he demonstrated. There was an event that led up to this, however, that really set the pattern for the kind of behavior that he showed forth in the 15th chapter of 1 Samuel. It's recorded in 1 Samuel chapter 13. He was involved in a war with the Philistines. An agreement had been reached between the prophet Samuel, and prophet was also this prophet was also the judge of Israel. Therefore, he was the leader, the political military leader, as well as the spiritual leader. And Samuel had told him, don't offer a burnt offering before going into war, because it's not your area of responsibility. It's for me to do that. Wait seven days and then I will show up, and then the offering may be made. Well, seven days came, and the day was growing close to an end. Samuel was not there, and Saul was becoming very nervous 
because he wanted the favor of the Lord in that battle that was coming up with the Philistines. And he knew, or at least he thought, the way to get it was to have a burnt offering. So he stepped out of bounds and he had a burnt offering. And guess who showed up as soon as that offering had been made? You guess it. Samuel the prophet showed up. And he confronted Saul and he said, Saul, why did you not wait? And he said to Samuel the prophet, who was his mentor in a sense, he said, you weren't here. We needed the favor of the Lord. And the people were getting nervous and they were beginning to leave. And I needed every last one of them to assist me in the battle because we are sorely outnumbered by the Philistines, not to mention out-equipped. For you see, the people of Israel in all the nation, they only had two swords. Saul had one, and Jonathan, his son, had one. So they had to fight with other kind of makeshift weapons, but all the Philistines had iron weapons because the Philistines had monopolized the whole industry of iron and also the sharpening of iron. If the Israelis wanted to have their farming utensils sharpened so that they could do a better job of farming, they had to go and pay a premium to get the Philistines just to sharpen the utensils which they used in farming. So you can see the anxiety that caused this man to rebel against the Lord. Another story that's contained in chapter 15, God had told Saul the king through the prophet Samuel to go to war against the Amalekites. The Amalekites had been long-standing enemies all the way back to the days of Moses. So for centuries, they had been the enemies of God and his people. What God told Saul to do through the prophet Samuel was to go and to completely wipe out all the soldiers of the Amalekites and take no spoil, even wipe out all the livestock of the Amalekites. Well, Saul went to battle, and he did in part what he was told to do. He spared their ruler, Agag, and also allowed the people to spare the choicest of the animals so that the animals could be sacrificed. Well, once again, sacrificing occurred. It was illegal sacrificing according to the law of Moses. And when Samuel showed up, he confronted Saul one more time. And he asked, what is going on here? And Saul said, I obeyed the voice of the Lord. I did what I was told to do. I wiped out everybody with the exception of Agag, the king, and then I allowed the people to take some of the spoil for sacrifice. And in so doing that, he rebelled against the Lord. So let's see what the prophet says to him in 1 Samuel 15, 22. He says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. In other words, it's better to listen to God than to put some choice sacrifice on the altar. God's interested in what is in our hearts, isn't he? Not in what we do ritualistically as far as our relationship to him is concerned. 
And he says in verse 23, For rebellion is as the sin of divination. The King James Version translates that, For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft. What happens when a person rebels against the Lord in the way in which Saul rebelled against the Lord? That person shifts over into the area of occultism. He goes on to say to Saul, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. What is insubordination? It's disobedience. It's rising above the authority which has been placed over you. In this case, he was the king. Who was the authority over him? One might say it was Samuel, but it really wasn't Samuel. Samuel was simply God's mouthpiece. God was his authority. And what this man, Saul, did, he elevated himself into a position of being worshipped, becoming an idol to the people because he had taken the place of God. That's what happens when we do not obey the Lord. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. This is one of the more sad statements that you can find in the Bible. If you look down to the last verse of this chapter, the last sentence of chapter 15 of 1 Samuel, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. That's a, that's a reinforcement of what we just saw above. So he rebelled. That was no good role modeling, was it, on his part for his son, Jonathan, or his other four children. Look at verse 24. He was fearful as well. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. He had just said to Samuel, I obeyed the voice of God. He was lying there, wasn't he? He partially obeyed. And remember, partial obedience is disobedience. We can't have it partly our way and partly God's way. God says, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, that's the false god of the Canaanites, follow him. So we see fearfulness in this man's life as well. He was jealous. In chapter 19, verse 1, if you'll turn there and look at the evidence of his jealousy for David. The Bible says, Now Saul told Jonathan, his son, and all his servants to put David to death. The reason for this is obvious. After David had won this tremendous battle with Goliath, and by the way, who gave the victory? What does David say as he goes into battle with this giant of a man, over nine feet tall? David maybe six feet. That would be generous to say. But he was giving away three and a half feet at least, maybe four feet in height, and no telling how much in strength from a human point of view. And he said, I come to you. He's talking to this man, Goliath, this Philistine giant. I come against you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. You come against me with your sword and your spear and your javelin. And you're going to lose, Goliath, because the battle belongs to Jehovah God. And so the rest, as they say, was history. But all the hoopla that followed, all the adoration of David which followed, created a lot of anxiety in Saul's life. Because the women 
came out from every town as they made their way from the valley of Elah back to their headquarters, and they were singing, Saul has slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And he became insecure and jealous. So he wanted to have David put to death. On two occasions, if you read forward in the book of 1 Samuel, you'll notice that there were times when David was in the presence of Saul, and Saul picked up a javelin and hurled it at him in an attempt to pin him to the wall. He missed both times. Later, he does the same thing to his son Jonathan. He throws a javelin at him, sticks in the wall, but not in the target. He was needing some work on his throwing of spears, obviously. But nevertheless, we see his jealousy surfacing here. He was also murderous. He actually succeeded in killing 85 priests in one town and also their wives and children. Now, here's why he did it. Because the leading priest, Ahimelech, in that little town of Nob, in that town these priests lived, and David and his 600 men came and asked for provision. And they were given food so they could continue. That's a lot of mouths to feed, isn't it? 600 folks, that's a lot, men especially. And also he got a weapon there. Remember there were only how many swords in Israel? Two. Well, he also picked up the sword of Goliath, the one whom he had defeated. It had been kept there for some reason for safekeeping. So he had that. And when Saul found that out, he got raging mad. And he went and he killed all those people, 85 people, not counting the women and children, were slaughtered that day. Amazing. And he had very harsh words, too. This is interesting. If you go to the 20th chapter, verse 30. Then Saul's anger burned against Jonathan. That's his son, remember. And he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you are choosing the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? This was the ultimate put-down that a person could receive when he was called the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. That's a way of saying your mother was a prostitute. Now, that's interesting because his mother was Saul's wife. And I'm sure he used that kind of terminology to her, too. I'm not sure. I would think so in light of what we've learned about him, how harsh he was in the things which he said to this son and perhaps to the other four children in different ways. So how do we account for Jonathan's character? I would suggest to you today that his character is one of the more sterling characters in all of the Bible. I have studied his life carefully in preparation for sharing what I'm sharing this morning. And there really is no glaring fault or flaw in his life. He is a wonderful person. And what we do know is sometimes people have wonderful character without any seeming external influence. 
Anybody who has sterling character has the internal influence of God in his or her life. But what we need to understand is Jonathan not only had a very poor example for a father, but Jonathan had a mother. You know her name? I sure didn't until I really began to think about this some weeks ago, really, when I was reading through the book of 1 Samuel. Her name is given to us in the 14th chapter. If you'll go back to the 14th chapter and the 50th verse. It's almost as an afterthought, but nothing in the Bible is an afterthought. It's all inspired by the Lord. It doesn't even fill up an entire verse. It's just one part of the 50th verse of 1 Samuel chapter 50, 14. rather. Look at it. The name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz. We don't know for sure that she was a woman of character, but somebody close to him had influence on him. I would like to think, using my sanctified imagination, that it was his mother who had that kind of influence upon him. His mother had his ear more than any other person had ever had his ear to influence him. Mother, you have the ear of your child unlike any other person because of the closeness you have with your children. Fathers, I'm not giving you an out here. We can't follow the example of Saul. I hope you see that. We want to do away with that. But what we do want to do is be tools in God's hands, both mothers and fathers, to make a lasting impact upon our children and inevitably a lasting impact on the world. Wouldn't you like it as a mother or a father that your child would have an impact that was stunning on the history of the world? Such impact usually flies under the radar. It's not written about in history books, but it's written in heaven. Because all the days that were ordained for David and for you and for me, as David speaks in Psalm 139, all of them were written in your book, God, before there was even one of them. And that is true of your child. That is true of your children. And you as a mother have a unique position, just like this woman Ahinoam had a unique position in influencing Jonathan. I like to think she did. By her example, and please mother, please father, understand that your example must back up what you say to your children. You don't have to be perfect, but you have to be a woman or a man after God's own heart. I believe she was such a woman. I believe Jonathan was. David is described as a man after God's own heart. I think this is the thing that really drew these two men together. Because after Jonathan had witnessed the great victory which David was given by the Lord over Goliath, and he listened to the conversation that followed that between his father Saul and this shepherd boy, David, the Scripture said this about Jonathan's soul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and he loved David as himself. I believe this man, Jonathan, was a man after God's own heart too. And we're going to see why in just a moment.
But let's think about the ways that she could influence him, could have influenced him. I think she influenced him to be a man who trusted in God, put his full faith from a child. She exhibited that. She lived in a difficult relationship, probably. What we know about Saul, he's not the candidate that one woman would want for a husband, really, the way he would rant and rave and carry on. He was so full of distress in his life, and it spilled over into the members of his family. But we see Jonathan as a great man of faith, do we not? We saw it in chapter 14. Were you following along as that passage was read? Remember the scenario? They were at war with the Philistines, and we see Jonathan and his armor-bearer. Remember, he had one sword. His armor-bearer carried other weapons, evidently. They sneaked out of camp. Nobody knew that they had gone. And they went to fight against the Philistines, an entire garrison of Philistines. Do you know how many people that would have been? Probably about 2,000 people, two against 2,000. The odds are not too good, are they? Not too good at all. But they went anyway, and remember what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will give us favor and a victory over the Philistines today. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. So they're standing at the foot of a slanted, severely slanted hill. And this is what Jonathan said to his armor bearer. If we come out in the open and they see us, which they will, and they say, we're coming to you, we'll just stay put. But if they say, come up here to us, it will be a sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. And his armor bearer was inspired by that kind of faith. And he said, I'm with you. I'm by your side. And so when they got in the open and the Philistines saw them, they said, come up here. We have something to say to you. They were really trying to bait them to come up and probably very sarcastically saying, where do you get off, two of you against all of us? You're inferior in every way imaginable. Well, the Scriptures tell us that he began to climb up. That is Jonathan. And he climbed up, and he's kind of on all fours climbing up. Have you ever climbed an incline like that, a mountain or a hill like that, because you couldn't really stand up? Maybe there was poor footing, or the angle was so sharp that if you stood up, there would be a possibility of losing your balance and falling down. That's not a good place to be in battle when you're facing off with somebody. So he's climbing up, and then what happened? He and his armor bearer killed 20 Philistines, and it was accompanied by what the Bible says, a great trembling. If you look at notes in your Bible, some of you have a New American Standard Bible, and this great trembling literally translates a phrase, the trembling of God. God accompanied them in battle. He's the one who put the people of Philistia fighting for that nation in a panic. And as the text continues to describe what happened, the courage of the people of Philistia serving in the army melted, and they began to fight against each other of all things, and there was this great victory. When the victory began to become apparent, what happened? Well, what the text tells us is, that people who were Israelis themselves, Hebrews, these people had took, taken up with the Philistines, and they went 
to fight with Saul. In addition to that, there were a bunch of people who were hiding, who were Jews, who were hiding in caves and in cellars and in cisterns and on cliffs. They were hiding out. They joined them. And the ranks of the army increased dramatically from probably somewhere around 3,000 to many, and they routed the enemy completely. It all started when this man, Jonathan, made a statement of faith. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. We must understand, this is the foundational principle of this man Jonathan's life. Everything else which follows has to do with that. We need to understand that it is quite possible that his mother had a faith, just like Timothy. Remember Timothy? When Paul was writing to him in 2 Timothy, he said, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Eunice, Lois rather, and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. Every person has to have his or her own faith. In other words, we have to make a trust venture to the Lord. But the influence of a mother is phenomenal, and a grandmother for that matter, as it was true in the case of Timothy. Here's the second thing that I would suggest that this man Jonathan learned from his mother that set him apart from his father. He learned to put others before himself. In 1 Samuel 18, 14, the Bible says, 18, 4 rather, the Bible says that this man Jonathan, after he was drawn into a great relationship of friendship with David, gave him his robe and gave him his armor. What would that suggest? Those were symbols of who he was. He was the heir apparent. He was the king in waiting. And when he gave those things to his friend David, it was his saying, I'm putting you before me. And this echoes what the New Testament teaches. For instance, when the Bible says, each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. It echoes what the Bible says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourself. This is Jonathan. What a friend he was to David. But what an example of putting others before ourselves. Mothers, learn to do that in your own life. I know you've done it. You continue to do it in your home, in your relationship with your children, in your relationship to your husband. But please teach this to your children by example and then teach them what the Word of God says about it. In the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel, verse 4, in a dialogue between Jonathan, the would-be king, and David, who was going to be king, this is what Jonathan said to him. He said, whatever you say, I will do for you. Can you imagine his doing that? Some of you have seen the movie, I Can Only Imagine. Most of you know the song. It sold 29 million copies. My favorite scene in the movie is the time when the song that Bart Millard wrote, I Can Only Imagine, was about to be performed publicly in Nashville by Amy Grant. She had been in a slump personally and professionally. And it was thought that if she could take this song, she would make a bundle of money for Bart 
Millard, the writer, and get his name out there, and he would have a great career in writing Christian music. But also it would help her to get her career jump-started again. You remember that scene where she comes to play the song, and the crowd is with her, and she says, I'm going to introduce a song now that is very special. It's been used by God for weeks and months to encourage me. And the way it's depicted, it takes a while for her to start the song. And finally, she looks in the audience. She knows that the author, Bart Millard, is sitting here. She points to him and said, Bart, would you come up here? It was not prearranged. He did come up there. And he said, this is your song, Bart. Sing it. And he belted it out. It was an electrifying moment as it happened in time. And we were allowed, who saw it, the movie, to relive it a bit. And in the background, I remember seeing Amy Grant. Do you remember that scene? She's over here. With a big grin on her face, she's got her guitar. She's playing the guitar. And I believe she's backing him up as a backup singer. She's singing too. I thought, what an example of putting others before yourself. It was her willingness to give this young man who had suffered loss in his life, like she had suffered loss, and how God had ministered to her in that loss and to Bart. What a beautiful story. I remember hearing about Leonard Bernstein, who at the time was the director of the New York Philharmonic Orchestra, and he was asked after a rousing performance by someone from the press, he said, Mr. Bernstein, what is the hardest instrument to play? in a symphony. Without hesitation, he said, second fiddle. It's the hardest. It's true in life, isn't it? To take a back seat to someone and truly want the best for that person. That's the attitude that this young man, Jonathan, showed to his friend. That's the attitude that we're to show to other people. Mother, you can teach your child to do that. Another thing we see is he took up for others who were wrongly accused. In this case, it was David. You can read about it in chapter 19, 1 through 7. The jealousy level had risen so high in the heart of Saul that he said, I want you to kill him. He said that to Jonathan and all the inner circle in the palace. I want this man dead. At all costs, I want him dead. But he courageously stands up for David, and God used that to change temporarily, but to change for a while the attitude of Saul. Saul backed off and said, I'm not going to pursue the death of David because he has been a great help to me. Also, this man, Jonathan, was a great encourager. If we took time, we could look at chapter 23, verses 15 and 16, when David was really low and Once more, Jonathan risks a lot, even his own life, and he finds David, and the Bible says he encouraged him by the hand of the Lord. He went and encouraged him. He learned this from his mother, undoubtedly. Probably there were times when Saul would say ugly things like we read earlier that he said to Jonathan, There's nothing that quite wilts the spirit of a child than for a parent 
to say something biting like he said to Jonathan when he said, you are the son of a perverse, rebellious woman. We have a way of saying that. I'm not going to say it. You can figure it out when we call somebody a name. It's that kind of thing, but it was even worse in Middle Eastern world and life. But encouragement is huge. And this man was encouraged, I believe, by his mother, and he in turn encouraged others. And then the bookends of the traits of this man, the first and foremost, is to depend on the Lord. Teach your child to trust the Lord. Give the example and then teach them what the Word of God says about that mother. And then here's the other one. Teach your child to deny himself. This man knew what it meant to deny himself. He knew what his father said was true. It's recorded in the 20th chapter of 1 Samuel, verses 30 and 31. He said, as long as this son of Jesse, naming David, as long as this son of Jesse is alive, you and your kingdom don't have a chance. In other words, you will never rise to the level you could rise as king of Israel as long as this person is alive. But he didn't care, did he? Because he understood what it means to be a true follower of the Lord. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. I know him. We don't know if she could read. But what we do know is she would have privilege and access to all of the Torah, all the history of Israel up to that point. She would have known the story of Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, Rachel, all the work of God's delivering Israel by Moses, all the things that the judges have, had done. She would know the names Deborah, and she would know the names Gideon, and Samson, and all the other judges, she would tell her son those stories. Even if she couldn't read, she would have told those stories. And she was telling her son, son, learn the importance of being self-denying. There is another woman, go forward about 2,500 years. Another woman, Susanna Wesley, the father, mother rather, of the two very famous men, John and Charles Wesley, who were key men in a great spiritual awakening in the 18th century and are given credit for starting what we call the Methodist Church, great men of God. She was the mother of 19 children. She was the 25th of 25 children from the same mother and daddy. That's a lot of kids. And her parents were people who were really godly people too. When she got married to Samuel Wesley, they had an assignment in an out-of-the-way place and they stayed there for over 30 years. It was not a desirable place to serve as a pastor or a pastor's wife. But they went there and they served. The people were so negative toward Samuel Wesley who had a very fiery temperament and he would say things, everything that came to his mind, he would say he was not in any way diplomatic. And the people grew to almost hate him. Some of them did. And they would set fire to his crop that he was growing to feed his growing family. Can you imagine? But this woman taught her children 
She homeschooled all of her children. Actually, she lost nine of the 19. They died in infancy or early childhood. But the 10 who reached maturity, she taught every one of them. And she taught the girls the same as she taught the boys. She didn't limit the teaching of the girls to how to sew and do domestic kinds of things. In fact, she waited until she taught them how to read and write, how to do arithmetic. The classics, they were taught Latin and Greek. They could read it. They could write it. She taught those things because she said, I want my daughters to have the same advantage which I had. She never went to a school per se, except her mother saw that she and her father saw that she was taught. And she gave that to her children. We know the two sons. They went to Oxford. They weren't the only boys who went to Oxford. Oxford was the university that every young man wished to go to there. Today, it's still, along with Cambridge, the two leading universities in Great Britain. Well, she taught her children to deny themselves by her example, but also by what she said to them. And here's an excerpt from a communication from her to a friend on this matter. On the subject of subduing the self-will of her children, Susanna was adamant. Quote, Heaven or hell depends on this alone. So if the parent who studies to subdue self-will in his child works together with God in the renewing and saving of a soul. The parent who indulges self-will does the devil's work, makes religion impracticable, salvation unattainable, and does all that in him lies to damn his child, body, and soul forever. Well, that's pretty strong, isn't it? This woman was a strong woman. She knew the Lord, loved the Lord. She was not fire-breathing like her husband was. She was much more even-keeled, but she had a will that was committed to do the will of God. And think of the influence, even to this day, hundreds of years later, that she's having on people because she raised her children to be that kind of person. The challenge for all of us, fathers and mothers, and even if you don't have children, maybe you will someday. But at any rate, we do well to imitate Jonathan, don't we? Being a man or woman of faith, in addition to that, being a woman or a man who denies herself or himself, and consequently we're people who put others before ourselves. We take up for people who are falsely in Accused, and we're encouragers of people. And we become a friend to people. And not just a social friend, but a spiritual friend. Remembering what the Bible says about friendship. A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Let's pray. Lord, we do ask that you help us all to yield fully to the Lordship of Jesus. And we would enter into the joy of your salvation. Father, it occurs to me, even as I'm praying, that were it not for our yielding ourselves to you, we would have no lasting joy. So I pray you'd fill us with your Spirit and his fruit of joy will overflow into the lives of our children and our grandchildren, 
in the lives of our spouses and people all around us. Fill us with your joy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.